I spent the last three years learning from some of the most ingenious mergers and acquisition specialists around. And now I've decided to take the leap into buying businesses. The real questions are how will I do it? How much of the behind the scenes can we really show? And how can business owners like you maximize their purchase price and build generational wealth? This show is going to give you the answers. Join me and follow along as I share mine and other stories as we buy, sell, or merge healthcare businesses and physical therapy practices. I'm Dave Kittle, and this is The Dave Kittle Show. Hey, welcome back to The Dave Kittle Show. I'm Dave Kittle, the practice owner of Concierge Pain Relief, Home Physical Therapy in New York City, and the CEO of the Fieldmaker Group. We're currently speaking with practice owners in regards to partnering or acquiring some or all their practice in the New York and New Jersey area. And today we have Mark Myers on the show. He is the founder of Peak Profit Solutions and a tax saving architect. We're going to get into that. He's not replacing your CPA, but we're going to be talking about how you as a practice owner could possibly and legally reduce your personal income tax liability by up to 60% without replacing your CPA or receiving investment advice. So before we get into all that, Mark, welcome on the show. Dave, thank you so much. It's great to be here and I'm excited uh, for the chat. Yeah, appreciate your time. We'll get right into it. So in terms of your background, give your little bit of a background or bio for the audience that might not know you. Sure. This is fun. So I started out in exercise physiology. So people are like, what in the world? How is this guy a tax savings architect? I, uh, Got my master's in sports management. I moved to New York City and I worked with a pretty popular little fitness club chain that was, when I started with them, it was only 11 clubs called Equinox. And oh, now wow. they're 100, you know, close to 100 clubs. And I helped them open clubs in Los Angeles and multiple, multiple clubs, multiple shops. And in that process, that was my first 12 years of uh, career. I learned how to run a business, I learned how to manage. Revenue, like drive revenue, reduce expenses. I learned how to basically increase EBITDA profit margins. And I was compensated on that. You know, I was basically as, as a manager of the club and basically opening new clubs, I get bonus based on how profitable the clubs were. So after a while, I realized I understand how business works. And I, of course, I love fitness and wellness because that's what I went to school for. But I'm going to break away from this because there's another opportunity for me. And I started, became a consultant to business owners, particularly in the insurance world. But over the last decade, I've realized I moved away from insurance. I've realized in the 75,000 pages of tax code, there's a lot of discounts there, a lot. And there's not that many people that are looking for them and know how to implement them correctly, including CPAs. Now, I'm not saying they're not doing their job. They are. I'm just saying they don't have the time to scour 75,000 pages of tax code and implement section code you know, 162 and 280A with this business owner right? That's where I come in. So I've really created an opportunity to work with CPAs and basically work with financial advisors because I don't tell them, I don't tell their clients how to invest their money and I'm not doing tax returns or accounting or bookkeeping. I'm just adding an additional layer of efficiency for individuals that are paying a lot of tax and they're, and they're pretty frustrated with it. Yeah. And so just as a initial touch point for the conversation here, a lot of the content that I've put out, we speak with others, brokers, advisors, more on the exiting, exit strategy, succession planning side. Obviously, what we're going to be talking about today are things that can help you as a practice owner that's watching or listening, that if you're looking to maybe exit in the next three to five years or a longer horizon, this is the type of conversation that could potentially help you. We're going to get into all that. Also, I want to mention, I saw on the website that Mark is a former Marine Corps sergeant, 
So Bravo Company, 4th Marine Division, just want to say thank you for your service before we move on. Hoorah, Dave. Thank you so much. I really appreciate uh, the acknowledgement. It was a good time. It was a good run in the Marine Corps. <laughs> Absolutely. So we definitely appreciate your service. So let's get into now, you're helping small business owners, but you're not a CPA. You are not a financial advisor. You collaborate with them. Give a little bit of, of initial starting point of like what you do, who you help, and why you do it. Absolutely. I'd say that the, the two primary avatars I work with or, or individuals, clients, would be those that are writing big checks to the feds and the state because their income is pretty high. Like they built their practice. They started out, you know, you know, obviously struggling. And of course, their practice became more and more successful. And all of a sudden, they have significantly more revenue than expenses. And they have a lot of profit that's hitting their 1040. And they're writing big checks. And they're, maybe their, their CPA is saying, hey, this is just the price you pay for being successful. And they're thinking, well, wait a minute. How is it that other people that are doing well or maybe even better than me, how are they paying a lot less tax? Because I hear these stories about this person paying no, no tax, you know, Bill Gates, all these people paying significantly less tax. How does that work? So that's really where I come. And I help, I plug in those additional efficiencies that maybe the tax professional doesn't have time to implement or maybe hasn't explored that could be beneficial. On a flip side, I also work with uh, individuals that are selling their businesses. Right. And there's two ways to reduce the capital gains tax that comes from the selling the business. One is pre-sale planning, right? You're structuring your sale in a very specific way. The other option is post-sale kind of post-sale, uh, you know, recapture, but pre-sale is the best. So I always say if you're thinking about selling your business and you're within the next, say, six months to a year, that's when I want to talk to you because if you structure your sale appropriately, you can significantly reduce the tax and in some cases, eliminate the tax, which is a pretty interesting conversation. So let's go into that because there's a lot of practice owners that watch or listen and they're maybe thinking about it. I mean, if they're watching the show, if they're subscribed to it, they're certainly considering it, seeing what's out there, seeing like what's the next chapter of their life looking like or what are their options, right? So for practice owners in that situation, if they're maybe thinking about it in the next year or so, uh, talk to them. Like, what would be their initial starting point? They reach out to you. They reach out to someone like you. What is a little bit more about the pre-sale planning? And like, is that formal? Is that informal? Like, what's that conversation or or process look like? Perfect. Yeah, Dave. Every every conversation is a little bit different, but I'd say I like to be as informal as possible in the first conversation. So it's just you know, it's a comfortable conversation. But when you know when someone's looking at exiting their business and they have built a fairly substantial business. So they will have a nice offer or two or three. And maybe the basis, because really in that conversation today, I'm talking a little bit of how are you structured, right? Because different structures have different exit strategies. As court versus a partnership, you might have a different way to approach this. But they also, also looking at what is their basis, right? How much, you know, if they are going to sell, if they're going to receive X, right? One, two, three, four, five. I don't know. It just depends on what they're... I mean depends on how successful their business is. If they can get $5 million from their business, how much basis, how much goodwill do they have? So what is their net taxable income after they sell? And that's the number I'm trying to attack because what I want to do is say, hey, Mr. or Mrs. Business Owner, if we assign the asset that you own, your business, to another entity, 
Like we have a, we basically shift the assignment of income away from you. Well, when you sell that entity, if you sell it in your name, you're on the hook for a, a tax capital gain tax bill. If you sell the entity through a structure that you created, now you can fully control the entity, but now you don't own it. Well, that different structure can have a significantly different tax ramification. So now that's really the pre-sell strategy is take the assignment of income away from the owner, move it to an entity that has a different taxable situation, but yet maintain 100% control over the asset or the cash that's produced from the sale of the asset. And now you redirect that money and essentially continue to earn income from it, but in a different way, right? Because you're probably not working anymore. Maybe you're doing consulting, but that money's... This is where wealth advisors love me because I can essentially give them and their client a lot more money to work with because it could have been that, you know, in the great state of New York, you've got, you know, the highest long-term capital gains, you've got 20%. Maybe you'll pay the 3.8% NIIT tax, maybe not, depending on the structure of the entity. And then, of course, you've got the extra 8 9% state tax. So you you could say 30% of your hard-earned work over you know, the last 10, 15, 20 years just go bye-bye. And, we, and I could say, yeah, let's keep that in your bucket. Let's keep that 30% in your bucket. And now let's let that compound, right? Because you can reinvest and reinvest and reinvest. And so there's different ways to handle that. Some ways that defer the tax and some ways actually eliminate the tax, which is kind of fun. To eliminate is a little bit larger structure. They need to, it needs to be a bigger sale, a little bit higher income sale, but um, it works very, very well. So going back to that opportunity or the idea of the pre-sale planning, you were saying uh, shift the entity from the owner owns this business to to what a trust or a different LLC or a shell company. Like, like what are some of the things there? And maybe I don't know if that's like too far in the in the weeds there, but like if it shifts from the owners, the owner owns it to another, not that owner, but they can still control the asset. So then, who would be owning it? Trust LLC, some other business entity or, or, or tax, you know, EIN, who owns it or who could own it? In, in, in most cases, it's a trust. Sometimes it can be an LLC holding company, but in most cases, it's a trust and you have a trustee and you have a settler, right? And essentially the way it's structured is you maintain complete control and there, therefore you shifted the assignment away from yourself. Now in the elimination strategy, we're working with an estate planning play. So now you have an irrevocable trust. It's a wealth preservation trust. It's really phenomenal because it's a, it basically gives you an estate freeze. All the gains that you, that occur within that trust moving forward is, is completely outside of your taxable estate, which for people that are accumulating a good amount of assets, that could be a huge benefit for them. And we don't know what the estate tax threshold is going to be. Currently, it's a, you know husband and wife it's, you know, with, the, with the inflation, it's going to be $25 million or so. But that sunsets. In just a couple of years. I mean, it could literally go down to every dollar above $3 million for a married couple is going to have a 40% estate tax on top of any other tax, right? So now you're looking at your kids not getting hardly, you know, getting significantly less of what you worked hard for. So the estate tax play is great. But an interesting thing with this wealth preservation trust is we can structure it in a way that we can actually move the money into the wealth preservation trust prior to the sale. Prior to the sale. Okay. So now the sale occurs and the owner of the business didn't receive a taxable event because they didn't receive any money. The Wealth Preservation Trust did. So the Wealth Preservation Trust actually does have a taxable event because trusts are taxed. But we have a structure in which we can actually get the dollars from that Wealth Preservation Trust inside of a tax-exempt vehicle prior to the end of the year. And it's completely by the code. You know, It's basically, we're following the tax code. We have opinions on this. 
and there's no taxable event. So essentially, if the money goes away from the business owner into the trust, so therefore the owner doesn't get taxed. And before the end of the taxable year, the trust can essentially, the money can be withdrawn from the trust into a tax-free vehicle. Well, now you've essentially put the tax payment or the tax burden in your back pocket. And this vehicle can actually be, you can invest and reinvest, grow the dollars tax-free. You can actually access the dollars for lifestyle spending tax-free. Sounds pretty interesting. I think a lot of people have probably heard that before, but this is a completely different structure than your mom and pop have heard about, right? With When people say, oh, you can put a lot of money into an insurance policy. It can grow tax-free and you can actually take loans against the policy and that's tax-free. This is uh, not your average life insurance policy. So essentially the dollars go into this policy. It's a private placement policy. You have so much more bandwidth than just like a John Hancock policy or an Allianz policy. You can literally invest in whatever you want inside this insurance dedicated fund and you can access the funds via loans and they can, you can pass those funds on to your kids and the kids can pass those on to their kids. So literally it can be, you can access the funds via loans, meaning you're taking out a loan against some of the capital that's in the trust. That's right. Therefore it's not taxable. The question is that the biggest question I always get, Dave, is well, how do you get the money into the insurance policy without paying tax? Because every time I talk, every CPA I've ever talked to, it's like when it comes to insurance, well, you can put post-tax money into insurance and then you don't really have to pay taxes again, right? Because it's going to grow. The cash value is going to grow. There's no taxes on the growth. As long as you're accessing basis or you're taking loans against the policy to access the cash value, there's no tax. And then the death benefit comes to the, the beneficiaries, no tax. So life insurance is a huge asset for ultra wealthy. I mean, ultra wealthy have tons of insurance, but this, again, this insurance play is, is different in that we can get the proceeds from the sale of the business into an estate planning trust. And that estate planning trust can essentially have those proceeds withdrawn into the insurance policy prior to the end of the year without triggering a tax event. And it's all in the code. What if a private practice owner that's selling their practice, they exit late in the year, November, December, and then the timeline's really crunched. And it sounds like this has to happen before the end of the calendar year. So then what? Yeah, this one's a little bit more sophisticated than like say a deferred sales trust. Deferred sales trusts are basically grantor trusts. You shift the money over to the trust. You can do it like super quick. And now you just defer the taxes for could be years and years and years. You still pay taxes on the money when you take money out of the trust to spend it. But essentially you're putting... Instead of giving yourself 70 cents after the sale, right? Because you're paying 30% capital gain plus the state, you know, or 20% capital gain plus the state. So instead of only keeping seven cents on the dollar, 70 cents on the dollar, like a deferred sales trust, you might keep 97 cents on the dollar. And then you can reinvest inside that deferred sales trust, not pay taxes. But when you do take the money out, you're paying taxes. But that really helps you control. It's almost like a, an IRA, but you have a lot more control of it. But in this situation, this was the elimination strategy. A little bit more sophisticated and it takes a little bit more income. So I would say we need a 45 day runway, right? We can't, I can't talk to someone and say, Hey, I'm signing the, the contract to sell my business in two weeks. Not enough time unless they can stall it. Like, Hey, if you can stall it signing, because the minute they sign the contract, they are, they signed the purchase agreement and their names on it. They've taken assignment of income. It's too late. Also, if it's a binding letter of intent. So if they signed a letter of intent that's substantially binding. That's also a sign of income. So we really need to make sure we're getting ahead of this before they sign a binding letter of intent or before they sign a purchase agreement with their name on it. We need to put this structure in place. So now the sale is not from them. The sale is from the entity that now owns the asset instead of them. 
Therefore, the, they're shifting the assignment of income to a much more efficient entity as far as taxes go. Got it. In terms of the timeline of the calendar year, let's say practice owner, they sell their practice, their business earlier in the year or mid-year. Based on your experience with like the timing of all this and maybe like the, the expense of having some of these professionals, whether it's their lawyer, their accountant, their CPA, you, whoever else might be in the mix of arranging this pre-sale planning and, and the whole arrangement with the trust and everything, is there a certain approximate dollar amount of like liquidity event or dollar amount of this transaction that where it makes it you know feasible or not feasible? Like maybe it's a million dollars, maybe it's two million. You know, if it's under a million, maybe it's not really going to be worth it. Is there some like benchmark there for anyone that's listening? Yeah, that's a really good question. Thank you for asking it, Dave. For the elimination strategy, this is the preferred vehicle for most because most like to eliminate eliminate tax, not defer tax, right? <laughs> like a Roth versus a regular IRA. We we love the Roth; it, it eliminates the tax. So elimination is because the private placement life insurance policy that essentially will hold the assets in that tax, very tax efficient environment. The minimum premium is $5 million. Now, it doesn't mean that your business has to be sold for $5 million or more. It just means that you have to fund the private placement life insurance policy with at least $5 million or more. So you can bring assets from other places in. So if you're selling your business for two or three or $4 million and you've done a good job building your assets over the course of your life, well, you can take the $3 million that you would have paid taxes on and bring another $2 million from somewhere else into this environment. And now you can meet the minimum requirement to start this private placement life insurance policy, which is $5 million. And here's the thing, Dave. The $2 million that they're bringing from somewhere else, they're likely putting it in a much better, much more efficient tax environment anyways, because it was probably getting taxed every time they had earnings on it, wherever it was. Now we're saying, let's not have it taxed anymore on its earnings. Let's also not have it taxed anymore on your income withdrawals as well, because you're going to take them as loans. So then then we just start plugging the numbers and making sure that everything makes sense with regard to long-term growth, their estate planning. So the $5 million minimum is not a hard stop on what is your practice selling for. It's just a matter of, we got to get at least $5 million worth of assets in this bucket to eliminate tax on at least the sale of, of your practice. Now, on the other side, on the, say, the deferred sales trust side, and there's actually a third way to do this. It's after, right? We haven't talked about the after the sale situation, which a lot of times I get because they say, Hey, I heard you can help with tax savings. And I'm like, Great. You know, what's going on? And they said, Yeah, I'm going to sell my practice or I sold my practice. And I'm like, When did you sell your practice? Three months ago. Oh, I'm going to pay taxes up. So we have to go with the post sale strategy. But the other pre sale, like a deferred sales trust, literally, as long as they're going to be paying tax on, I said, let's call it their tax bill on their income received from the sale, if it's north of $150,000, well, then the deferred sales trust is going to, the numbers are going to start to pencil out well, right? Because you're going to be able to keep more in your bucket. You're going to be able to reinvest that money and basically grow it without paying taxes. And of course, if you, if you withdraw it the correct ways over time, you're going to be well ahead of the game. Similar to think about how you think of an IRA, right? You put pre-tax money in an IRA, it grows, it grows, it grows, and you do your best... But the thing about the deferred sales trust is you have a lot more flexibility as to how the money comes out. Like you don't have to wait till you're 59 and a half. So if you're selling your practice at 50 or 52, right, you're not waiting to access it. And also if you're 73 or 74, nobody's telling you like, knock, knock, knock. Hey, you have to take money out because we want our taxes paid. You don't have those rules because it's not a qualified structure. It's a, it's a non-qualified structure. So that's that. Now the, 
I don't know if you want me to go into the post sale, but uh, I'll stop and run. No, no, let, let, let's do that. So <laughs> let, let's let's do that. Let's say a practice owner in the future they see this show, this interview, and they're like, "Oh man, like I just I sold my practice," and then they reach out to you, and then they say to you, "Oh, I sold you know three months ago, six months ago." Mark, you know, is it too late? What can you do for me? So what do you got? Yeah, those are a little bit more difficult because really what you're doing is you're acquiring assets to offset the tax liability. So the easiest one to to talk about, which most people have heard of, I, I don't offer this. I'm just using this as a reference. Their financial advisor probably offers it if they if they deal in alternatives. They're going to say, oh, why don't you buy me this oil and gas play where you can get this ownership of this well, this drilling site? And the government's going to give you an IDF depreciation on it. So you can basically take a deduction for all the dollars that go into creating this well. So if you put a dollar into this investment, you're going to get a, you know, based on their tax bracket, maybe a 35 cents tax savings. So now they got to put a dollar in the investment and save 35 cents. It still costs them 65 cents, but that investment might ideally perform really well. So they got a 35 cent head start. Now I always say, don't let the tail wag the dog. Don't invest in something just to get a tax efficiency. Invest in something because you want, you're confident it's going to actually give you a return. On the flip side, I'm going, so now what I'm talking about is what I would go for is the federal government wants the private sector to purchase solar assets. Why does it want the private sector to purchase solar assets? Because they don't have the bandwidth to essentially increase the renewable energy grid, particularly solar. So they're saying, Bank of America, Wells Fargo, Amazon, Chase, please buy as much solar as you can. We're going to give you a tax credit. Well, you also get depreciation. So when, I, when I'm talking to someone that's basically post-sale and they have a big tax bill that would, we can't pre-strategize, I say, well, let's like, take a look at what it looks like to purchase solar. Because a lot of times for every dollar that you purchase in solar, between the tax credit and the depreciation, if we take a little financing on that purchase, I can give them more than a dollar of tax savings. And that solar is going to basically give them cash flow for about 35 years. So I can say to the owner, if you set up the structure, it's very simple. You're going to buy solar projects inside of it. They're going to produce cash flow. But what's going to happen is the federal government's going to buy that, that asset for you. You're going to put a dollar in it, but you're going to save a dollar and 10 cents. So you might not do it just to save 10 cents in taxes because you're like, ah, oh, it's too much pain in the butt to save 10 cents in taxes. But in addition to the 10 cents of taxes, you're going to get $2 of free money in cash flow over time because this solar project that you own, like you own panels on this bowling alley or this private school or this church or house of worship, they're going to be paying whoever owns those solar panels for up to 35 years. And if, if you purchase those solar panels with the federal government's money and you still got tax savings, like I put a dollar in and got a dollar 10 of tax savings, but now you're getting $2 of free cash flow for the next 20 to 30 years. That's not a bad deal. So that's the way I generally handle the post sale. It's like, hey, let's purchase this asset, get a dollar or more of tax savings with just in the tax arbitrage. And then let's pick up the free cash flow for the next couple of decades. Got it. Let's circle back. I want to talk more about how you can help practice owners reduce up to 60% of their income tax liability. In the pre-interview, you talked about two big problems. Number one, the big number one big tax problem practice owners, business owners that write a big check to the IRS each year. And then the number two big tax problem was selling your practice, paying a large chunk in taxes. You talked about the pre-sale planning, post-sale recapture. So let's circle back. Let's say a practice owner is watching, listening. They have no, you know, three to five years in the future, maybe they're going to sell their practice. It's nowhere near in sight, but they do, they are concerned about reducing their tax liability. So can we focus on that the next maybe 
five, 10 minutes in terms of whether tips, strategies, or just initial takeaways for them to consider. 100%. I love this conversation because this is a little bit more, more consistent conversation I have. You know, obviously business exits are lifetime events and, but you know, there's a lot of people out there that are starting to make pretty good money or have been making pretty good money and they've, they cringe every time they write the tax checks. So in this situation, I just do a quick analysis to understand how they're structured, right? You're a business owner. How are you structured? Are you a partnership? Are you a, are you a single member LLC or your sole proprietor? Are you an S corp or your C corp? How much salary are you taking? How are you taking any profit above salary? So I'm really understanding where's all your income coming from. And now once I understand that, then I know, okay, how they can shift the income, right? Because you want to create, maybe there's other pathways that they can take their income that are more tax efficient. So that's my first step is just to really analyze how much income they have and how, from what sources and how are they currently getting that money from their business or businesses to themselves. So then I start saying, let's put in some different pathways for you. So one of those pathways I like to talk about it because I like talking about some of these solutions because they're fun and, and it gives people a little bit more of something to grab a hold to and not, not this ethereal kind of like, oh, if I just do this analysis, I'm going to save taxes. No, let me show you a few ways you can save. So I call this the chip shot. It's been around for 50 years. So I'm not, I'm not the only one offering this. Obviously, there's a lot of tax professionals out there that know about it that actually take the time to implement this with their clients. A lot of them maybe have heard about it, but they have never taken the time to dig into it. But the chip shot started in Augusta, Georgia, 50 plus years ago. I don't know if you like golf, Dave, but every year in Augusta, Georgia, somebody gets a green jacket. It's a pretty illustrious event, right? The Masters. So 50 years ago, like Augusta is a pretty small town in Georgia. And internationally, it gets basically swarmed every year because... Everybody wants to go to the masters. The corporations come in and they want to wine and dine their best clients, bring them see the masters, do all that thing. So the people that lived around the course there, because there wasn't a lot of luxury places to stay, they said, we're going to go on vacation and we're going to rent our houses to the corporations coming in that are wine and dining their clients or just rich spectators that want to pay a boatload of money for our house while we go somewhere else. They lobbied with Congress and Senate, and they basically got a, a law passed that it's, it's section code 162 and 280A, it's a combination, that basically says anyone that owns a primary residence or a vacation home or an RV or a boat that has a kitchen and a bathroom, well, you can rent that to a third party up to a certain number of days per year. And the income that you receive for that rental is not taxable. So anybody can do this. You don't have to live in Augusta, Georgia to do this, but they just happen to get a lot of money for their rentals because of the location. So when I say this to people, a lot of times they're like, yeah, that sounds pretty cool, but I don't live in Augusta and I don't want a stranger in my house. I'm like, yeah, I wouldn't either, but your S-Corp is a person. It's not you. So interestingly enough, do you ever need board of director meetings? Do you ever do strategy meetings for your business? Do you ever talk accounting for your business? Do you ever have marketing meetings for your business? Well, why why don't you have your business rent your home for the purpose of business strategy, et cetera. And the income that your business is paying you for that meeting is not taxable to you as long as you follow the rules. And we can actually justify, depending on where you live. And in New York, my New York clients and my LA clients can justify a lot more rental income per year than somebody living in the middle of Indiana. Right? There's a lot of comparables out there that I can say, well, based on the price per square foot, if you went to this you know, five-star hotel and rented a similar space... Well, you could actually rent your place for two, three, four thousand dollars a day. Do that. 
multiple times per year. There is a limit to the number of times you can do it. You need to do it right. But think about it. It's an expense to your company. Let's just say you can get $40,000. I always say this is your first thirty dollars to $40,000 of income that you're not paying taxes on. And if you're in the highest tax brackets, $40,000 of income that you're not paying taxes on is going to save you like $15,000, $20,000 in tax. It's a chip shot, right? Because what if I'm talking to somebody that has a million dollars a year in tax? They're like, great, you saved me money on twenty, thirty thousand dollars. What are you going to do with my remaining nine hundred eighty thousand dollars? Right? That's the conversation, and that's when I go into layer two, layer three, strategy two, strategy three. So I'll stop there. I mean, there's plenty more we can talk about, but I didn't want to get too too crazy unless you want me to go into a couple more things. With that, is there a limit? Maybe every state's different, or is it all similar across the U.S.? Where is there a limit on the amount of days that you could use per location where it's not taxed, and whether you're using your beach house, your main residence, maybe you're using your corporate office and having someone else rent that space, and like whether the some other third party is paying your company or they're paying you directly. Like, is there a limit on days per? year per location or per taxpayer or how does that shake out? Yeah, there is. There actually is. That's uh so you know I have a lot of clients that have a, a primary residence and a vacation home. And the vacation home the kicker is it can't be income producing. Or if it is it, it can't be producing income for more than a number of days that you qualify for tax free income. So with that being said, let's say you have, it's 14 days per year per dwelling unit. So if you own a primary residence and a vacation home, that's not income producing and you never really rent it out to anybody else, that's 28 days, right? You can have 28 meetings throughout the year because you get 14 days for your primary, 14 days for your vacation home. And let's just say you own a boat. A lot of clients have nice boats with a kitchen and a little gallery, you know, galley and a, and a bathroom. Well, that actually qualifies as well. So you can literally have another 14, 14 days. 14, 14. That's right. And as far as the... The rental amount, where you're really, you know, that's where, you know, the, doing the right comparables makes, you know, is really important to make sure you're, you can justify how much you're renting that for and actually doing it and actually invoicing it right, putting minutes in your, like you need to put it into your corporate minutes. So it's basically a policy that your, your company is ratified. I mean, everything needs to be done above board and it's totally fine. And again, it's been around for 50 plus years. I don't see it going anywhere. So it's always say this is a chip shot at. Yeah, take your first twenty to forty thousand dollars of income with no tax. That's always nice. And then we go to okay, what else can we do? What else can we do? What else can we do? Got it. Before we wrap up, you were saying a bunch in the pre-interview about coupons. It's basically like you find these places in the tax code to allow business owners to have discounts and incentives, basically. So maybe touch on that before we wrap up in regards to your ability to understand stay on top of the changes of the IRS tax code. And that I think in the pre-interview, I said, like, it seems like, you know, Mark, maybe you know the tax code better than a lot of the other financial advisors or CPAs or, or et cetera out there, because like, this is your niche and, and they don't have the time to be either staying on top of these updates or to know the entire book of IRS tax code. And I, I know you went with a humble response. You, you didn't want to, you know, you didn't want to be phrased or, or framed that way. But in terms of like the discounts and the coupons out there, what are some other things just as like maybe high level before we wrap up that other practice owners, other business owners can think about or that they can consider, you know, reaching out to you or someone like you where maybe they're leaving money on the table and there's things out there that they could actually access, but they don't know about it. 
Absolutely. I'll give you two more. And we talked about solar a little bit, right? Because that's a good one as well. You know, you bought, you, the federal government wants the private sector to purchase solar. It just so happens that you can take a tax dollar and purchase that solar and then just pick up a long-term cash flow from it. So essentially, you're letting the federal government purchase long-term cash flow producing asset for you because you're buying it with a tax dollar. You're not buying it with technically money that, you know, I always have to get that through to people like they don't get it at first. I'm like, well, what's my investment return? I'm like, it's infinite. What do you mean it's infinite? Because you didn't have the dollar to invest in it if you just paid your taxes. We're taking a, do- a tax dollar to buy it, not a dollar that you would invest after your taxes. But the other one, like, so the other two, which are really good for practice owners, particularly if they have risks, but one of them is below the line planning and the other one's above the line planning. So the below the line planning is what everybody does, you know, a lot of people are charitable. Right. And a lot of times when I say this, people are like, okay, Mark, I've heard this. I'll give a dollar away. I'm in a 45 cent tax bracket. I say 45 cents. Well, last time I did the math, I still lost 55 cents. Okay. That's not, so I'm not telling when they say charitable, I'm not saying, but the good news is you give to the charity that you love and they get a dollar and it only costs you 55 cents to give them a dollar. That's a pretty good deal if you really like the charity. But what I'm saying is don't give cash, Dave, give a tangible asset. Because if you give a tangible asset to a charitable organization, you could take the fair market value for that tangible asset. Now you just have to figure out how to get a tangible asset for less than its fair market value or hold on to it for a little while and then give it away one or two or three or four years later when it's appreciated. So now you get a fair market value significantly higher than your cost basis. Well, let's do the math. In New York, if you can buy an asset for a dollar that's worth $4, like legitimately, it's worth $4 and you can buy it for a dollar. If you decide to donate that asset, you're going to get a $4 deduction. At the highest tax brackets in New York, when you add federal plus state, you're going to get $1.55, $0.57 of tax savings, $1.60 something. But it only costs you a dollar. So I'll spend a dollar all day long and $1.65 of tax savings. You can only do that up to 30% of your AGI. But that's been around that, that coupon day that's been around for 117 years. You've heard of the stories. Oh, this wealthy group gave, uh, this wealthy couple gave this fine art to this museum out of the you know, the, the love of their heart, you know, they gave this, they, they wanted a lot of people to enjoy this piece of art. Well, maybe that's the case as well, but you know what? They got a huge tax deduction for that. And I guarantee you that the fair market value that they took for that piece of art was significantly higher than their cost basis. So we're basically, you know, the groups that I work with, they create these efficiencies. So the hardworking physical therapist, medical practitioner, or just business owner that doesn't have time to do these things can just plug into something and actually say, yeah, I can, I can buy an asset within this partnership at a discount. And because the partnership has owned this asset for a number of years, I've owned it for a number of years. And if I decide to donate it, which I don't have to, it makes sense for me. Great. So that's not, so that's really below the line. But one more above the line would be a lot of people don't realize that they have a lot of risk in their business that they're not accounting for via their insurance, like their, their liability coverage or their excess lines coverage or their employment liability coverage, whatever it is. They might have a lot of things that they don't even realize that they're self-insuring and that could be problematic. What if I could say, oh, Dave, you know, you can actually insure for those things. And let's just say the way that it works is it's a premium expense, right? It's just like when you send that check away to the insurance company, but you know, the only time you're ever going to see a return on it is if you have a claim and they pay the claim. Well, what if you own the insurance company? Captive insurance has been around for many, many years. It has to be done right because the IRS doesn't like it if it's not done right. And they'll tell you so. But that's why you work with someone like me. It's that this is, if you're going to do it, these are the four captive companies in the US that are the best and they are, they do it right. And they've held up in audits in the past. But now you can put a dollar into this bucket 
And that's your dollar, right? And it's basically a premium for a risk that you're basically exposed to. And it might be that you need to take a, a claim from it, but essentially the good news is you're going to get the claim. Your regular insurance company probably wouldn't would have covered that claim, but you have the claim. But if you didn't need the claim, obviously that's going to grow and it's going to compound and compound. So say uh, you're a you took whatever claims you needed, but the rest is compounding. And then you retire or you sell your practice. Well, now you have all this money in this bucket, right? Because you own this, own this insurance company, right? Somebody else managed it for you. And now you can access that money at long-term capital gain. So if you think about comparing it to, say, a qualified plan, well, a qualified plan, you put all the money in the bucket. It's pre-tax. You grow it. And then at the end of the rainbow, the IRS is saying, give us regular income tax and you have to start taking it out at age 74. And maybe we change your mind. Maybe you want income tax, regular income tax to be 50%. We don't, maybe not 37. In this situation, you're getting the same pre-tax deduction. It grows just like in a qualified account. But at the end of the rainbow, you can actually access it at long-term capital gains. And then most people agree that long-term capital gains are always going to be less than regular income. But you never know. But at least you've got that potential opportunity. And you remember that time? Remember I told you about exiting structures that are appreciated? Well, if you have enough money in that captive that's appreciated, instead of paying a long-term capital gain, let's do one of those pre-sell strategies, right? Because when you exit the captive, it's like you're selling it. So we can actually put it into a trust and essentially defer it, or we can eliminate it if there's enough. So we can technically get rid of that long-term capital gain if we plan accordingly. So hopefully that was fun. I know I put the fire hose on and just spray. Love it. I love it. I love it. You can, you can, you can see why you are the tax savings architect. Mark, this was awesome. I'm blown away. I've taken a lot of notes here and I know the audience is going to love this. You can check Mark out at peakprofitsolutions.com. What's another good place, whether it's the website, email address, LinkedIn, what's a good place on the internet for anyone in the audience to reach out to you to learn more or just connect? First website, because I do have case studies there that they can tap into. I also have a calendar that they can literally just book a, a short appointment because I can find within 20 minutes, I can I can let them know if there's opportunity for tax savings and whether it's substantial or where, whether it's uh, whatever that number is, I can usually tell them. But you know, always check me out on LinkedIn as well. I think it's like Mark Shannon Myers is my LinkedIn uh, profile. And that way you can see a little bit about my history. But uh, I like the website because it gives them an opportunity to grab some case studies and also book an appointment with me just to chat about their situation. Excellent. We'll put all that information in the show notes. Mark, thank you so much for your time. You listening in the audience, if you find this interesting, helpful, valuable as a business owner, whether you are looking to continue to grow and expand your, your business, your practice, or if you're looking to sell or exit, this episode helps you with that. So subscribe to The Dave Kittle Show on YouTube. Check us out on iTunes and Spotify. And we'll catch you here next time on the show. Bye now. Thank you, Mark. Hey, it's Dave Kittle. Are you a healthcare business owner or physical therapy practice owner who is looking to figure out your succession plan or exit strategy? We might be able to help. And in fact, we may be interested in acquiring your practice. If you're interested, you can reach out to me. Shoot me an email at dave at conciergepainrelief.com. That's D-A-V-E at C-O-N-C-I-E-R-G-E, painrelief.com or you can call me at any time, 646-781-8884.